you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast be real on the playlist podcast network brought to you by California College of the Arts' writing MFA program. Today we come to you in the form of a single movie pod. We are talking about The Last Black Man in San Francisco with an interview with star and uh, story originator Jimmy Fails later in the show. But first us, I'm Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. The Last Black Man in San Francisco, new movie out this month from A24. It... Uh, had was in its most theaters just this past weekend and i think we'll continue to get a little wider over the next couple weeks it is sort of docu-realistic sort of fantastic in meshing of those styles a drama set in the titular san francisco um directed by first-time director joe talbot uh starring first-time feature film actor and writer jimmy fails and jimmy plays a version of himself in this movie which is an extrapolation of something that happened to him in his youth where he was his family was evicted from their home in the fillmore district of san francisco but in this movie uh jimmy lives with his best friend mont played by jonathan majors and mont's grandpa danny glover and it seems like the guiding principle in Jimmy's life is that he is continually drawn back to this house that his family lived in in the Fillmore district, uh, but has not for years, that was built by his grandfather. And he, like, tends to the siding. He paints the windowsills. And the, the white people that live there now, and we should say, maybe you could tell from the title, that Jimmy and Mont are black, um, are just like, Jimmy, what are you doing? You have to stop coming to our house. You have to stop doing this. And the circumstances unfold in the film where uh, Jimmy sees like an opportunity to buy slash maybe just squat in this beautiful Fillmore home with this incredible witch hat. Didn't you find the home pretty beautiful? The setting itself uh, is incredible. Right. A char- the house is a character in and of itself. We built these ships, dredged these canals. In the San Francisco, they never knew existed. This is our home. You two stick together. Always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You could put on one of your plays. We could yell. It is this house. Our house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighborhood. And yeah, so it becomes like sort of like a partnership scheme movie that like drives through the second act. Uh, it's definitely kind of just like meditative on Bay Area and urban gentrification. Um, 
but that particular sort of exaggerated, uh, cruel San Francisco brand of it. Um, where do you want to start, buddy, before we talk to Jimmy later in the show? What is your relationship like with the city of San Francisco? Traveled there once when I was a kid. What about you? You were there recently. See, this is, I was, this is one of my favorite genres of movies, uh, which is why San Francisco is bad. Because I happen to hold that belief too. What and, else falls in that category? Well, I mean, it may Zodiac? just be Zodiac, Bullet. <laughs> uh, That's the takeaway from those yeah, films. But go ahead. There may be more. But yeah, but I mean, I have no affinity for uh, San Francisco. And this movie, I mean, one of the lines in the movie, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, is to hate San Francisco, you you must first love San Francisco. Right. This um, movie would put forth that you're not allowed to hate it. Maybe I secretly do love it. Mm. And that's the reason I hate it so much. Never heard you say but that. actually, <laughs> I just feel very ill at ease. Uh-huh. I described it once to you as having my internal gyroscope unable to flip over as if I am an iPhone. Sure. That has nothing. To, that was a great metaphor, but nothing to do with gentrification. So the first 10 minutes of the movie are sort of an art film that places us in San Francisco. Jimmy and Mont are just like skateboarding around, like sort of on the perimeter of the mission, uh, taking you through like what was once cool San Francisco and what was frankly black San Francisco. Right. And we go to these sort of odd shots of like these sort of oblivious looking, uh, rich, but poor dressed white people who were like drinking their iced coffees and like walking their dogs around. And it's just the sort of worst of the worst. And you just hate these people. You hate the conversations they're having. You just like hate their whole attitude. Uh, Or at least that was my takeaway in the first 10 minutes. Uh, And then of course, chance you mentioned it too. Once you get past that, and I was sort of happy the movie did get past that fairly quickly and getting into the quote unquote plot of this movie, which is how, you know, Jimmy's going to take back the house uh, of his childhood slash his family legacy. Right. Which is, I think, a really compelling like way to situate a movie. Because I don't think the other plot in this, which is Mont writing his play, like really has the gravitas of like the physical location being like pushed and pulled between several different forces. Yeah, let me pick up on something you said there. I think one of the best things about this movie is that it's clearly about like gentrification and the faces thereof, but not in like a discursive sense. Did you see that movie Blind Spotting that came out last year? No. I kind of liked certain things about it. It's another it was an Oakland-based movie that deals with like a lot of these same problems, but it's very much in kind of that like Twitter discourse over like gentrification is just a big fat iced coffee and one of the best things about this movie is i think it investigates the the changing facades of cities on a much deeper level than that right because like gentrification is not cannot be conquered individually but when you when you explore it like deeply on an individual level in terms of like both the soul of what's being lost the history that's being lost the bizarre irony of the people who know a place best kind of craning their necks to get a look at something they know like the back of their hand, I think you start to understand 
like the emotional truths in what is otherwise kind of just like a you know a big systemic lie that nobody can quite get their head around yeah and this movie's also in conversation too with i would say sorry to bother you mm-hmm. in the idea of how i would say people of color are expected to interact with the quote-unquote system yeah so in this way it's represented by like this this uh sort of slimy realtor uh played by one of my favorite bad guys uh finn whitrock yeah He's just like always showing up as like the douchey older brother or like the best friend who's like really playing the main character or whatever. He also, I have, he played a token white desk jockey in If Beale Street Could Talk last year. So this felt like just a different shade of that same office. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think, and also in that bank scene too, there's sort of an interesting, you know, uh, not quite the level of Army Hammer level satire but sort of like the going through the motions of it. Right. I talked to Jimmy about that scene a little bit because his performance in this movie is so, um, you know, very interior for the most part. It's a lot of eye acting. You're just looking in his eye. You're just doing that hope check. Like, does Jimmy have hope in his eyes still? (laughs) Because this like, this could be sliding downhill. So when he kind of lets loose that salvo of like, this is what I've got to do to the potentially suspicious white neighbor walking his dog in order for my plan to work. It's really fascinating when he goes into the bank and he's like, give me as predatory of a loan as possible. I don't care. And the guy's so taken aback. It's a very fascinating second shade to that performance. Absolutely. And this movie interrogates, I think in the viewer, that idea of, I mean, especially me, like a cisgendered heterosexual white man, uh, that, if I were to in, like interface with the system, quote unquote, I would have a, such a different experience than this guy who's just trying to convey his quote unquote sob story about like why he is entitled to this place. Mm-hmm. And for most of the movie, you believe him. But then I think this movie sort of shifts into like really good movie thing where it's not about, it's not even about gentrification at all. It is about the lies we tell ourselves. Sure. Yeah. Um, we're going to do like a spoiler section after the interview with Jimmy. Uh, can we talk about a couple more things before we get back to that? Oh, please. It's one of the best. <laughs> this is sort of <laughs> goes against kind of like the binary of our rating system risk system, but this is one of the best times you can have in terms of cinematography, like in a theater this year. It is so stunningly gorgeous to look at. And I mean, I haven't seen it. I think it's probably been three or four weeks since I saw it. It's fresher for you. You saw it today. Um, But there's a lot of shots of people's faces that are like really impressed upon my brain. Um, I know that Joe and Jimmy are big fans of Barry Jenkins. uh, And I think he like even maybe advised them on the project or a short film or something. Um, But this picks up on a lot of the themes that are in Medicine for Melancholy, Jenkins' first film. But it has that. It has that eye to it in terms of Joe Talbot's directing. Um, it's one of the few times in recent memory, too, where I can remember appreciating someone doing slow or fast motion. Mm. Like, there's a lot of interesting work done with space, like whether or not they're they're in transit or they're traveling or they're just sort of like in this weird daze wandering around this big house like there are these sort of slow tracking shots. So there's brilliant ones with he's on the skateboard too, to sort of show, you know, whether luck is like on his side. Like if he lands that trick, like 
it's going to be a good day. That's but if he wipes out, he sort of wipes out then into the next scene, which is sort of a an interesting way to set the pace for a movie. And one that really like, it sucks you into it. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the score is great. Um it's tough not to love Jonathan Major's face. I was so fascinated with his performance as Mont. And we'll talk like you said, it's it's debatable whether like his character arc works, but the way he kind of like is such a physical like friend in terms of proximity to Jimmy and the way they move together, um you know, it has and I mean this as a compliment like you're, part of me was like, is that guy even there? Is like the twist of this movie that like he's an imaginary friend because he is so like locked in to Jimmy's passions. I mean, he's an artist. He's trying to document them for his play. But yeah, that performance from Majors is really good. Yeah, there's something a little of mice and men about them, isn't there? Indeed. Where you where you have um, you know in Jonathan Majors Mont a sort of Lenny. I mean, he's never dangerous or anything, and you never think... I was afraid this movie was going to shift into that cliche where it's like, oh my God, like he's going to cause a violent racial incident because of his like goofy personality, which thankfully like doesn't even come close to happening. Yes. But there is still something at play that allows him to observe this world in a way that no one else can, and that when someone needs to be told like a harsh truth he is the one who becomes the vessel for that truth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about, uh, if I mention the names Danny Glover, Tashina Arnold, and Rob Morgan, uh, any of those strike your fancy conversationally? Supporting performances? I, Danny Glover was great. Yeah. Such a, such a warm grandfather. And kind of like a sad, I think the scene that got me the most, and this doesn't spoil anything, I don't think, but as... Uh, Mont is like moving some of his things into the big house. Uh, Danny Glover kind of corners him and is like, when are we going to brainstorm for your next play? Right. And Mont's like, I, I got to do this one on my own. And Danny Glover's uh, grandpa's devastated. Oh my God. It's tough. He was like looking so forward to like connecting with another person in this way. And He's heartbroken. And that really, and he's just like this old blind guy. It's like, Jesus. You know, in the scene before, uh, Mont was like doing the uh, sort of descriptive voice captioning for this old movie they were watching mm-hmm. together. And now he's sort of moving on out. I want to talk about Rob Morgan really quick, who plays Please. Jimmy's dad and who I first saw in um, in Mudbound. That was, yes. He's got such that was a such voice. such a good... He's got a great voice, and they give him the script gives him such interesting physical things to do. He when you we first meet him, he is stuffing counterfeit DVDs into their cases that he's making by cutting, you know, close to the edge. He even comments like get it to full bleed, like don't have any white on the edges. Such great like terminological writing too. I know. It's I mean that that's literally what it's called, but that he thinks about that is is a guy who's so focused on detail, but like at the end of the day, he's selling bootleg DVDs. So well, like... it fits in perfectly too to this idea of uh, tragic generational corrosion, right? If Jimmy's grandpa right. built that house by hand, doing a like a freehand impression of houses built a hundred years earlier, and his son is applying his craftsmanship to bootleg DVDs. Like, that's tragic. Right. 
But of course, his son's son is like seemingly a pretty decent handyman. Yes. Like he has marketable skills. Right. Whereas Mont is just like poking heads of fishes at the fish market. Right. We've said a lot of nice things. The thing with like their jobs to me, especially Jimmy's job at the old folks home, that felt a little bit like somebody, I mean, I don't think A24 gave notes, but they kind of like self-noted the script maybe. Like we need some more color in this movie in terms of like what they do and what they do in their lives. But like it feels kind of like first film details that slipped through the cracks and like didn't amount to very much. Because like that job is in the wind immediately, right? And it seemed like an important part of his character. It just didn't make sense to me ultimately why this movie wasn't, as we joked before we started recording, you and I, Chance, it didn't just have more of a plot of The Intruder, uh, which came out earlier this year with Dennis Quaid, in that, like, why wasn't he, like, being paid to just, like, be a handyman, like, fixing up this house, and then it makes sense that, like, why he knows this house is becoming available and then moves in. Right. Like, it seems to solve some of the bigger questions of the movie if you just have maybe, like, a little bit more of a symbiotic relationship between the rich white people and this young man of color. Potentially. Yeah, I mean, that could be... That's an interesting interesting choice. I think when you complimented it for not falling into racial cliches and then said it should be more like the intruder, <laughs> we might have some dissonance there. But I take your point, baby. Um, <laughs> let's see. Very good. Let's talk about uh, if I if I'm gonna remember one part of this movie going forward in terms of visual storytelling and writing come together, uh, it's the scene where Jimmy's at the bus stop with the naked guy. But the best part about that scene is that they they raise the stakes. All of these like when this this movie works is that they take something familiar and then raise the stakes. So it's not merely a naked bus passenger. It is. What's more, the, the joke is, what's more horrible right. than being on a bus with a naked person? And what's more horrible is, is the a gentrification party bus. of San yeah. Francisco. Is the Jefferson Airplane EDM and everybody yelling, this guy fucks, this guy fucks. Which I don't know if that was like a specific Silicon Valley joke, but it like wasn't. It's got to be, right? That's what me. I was thinking. Yeah. Well, do you want to, I, I think I would love to hear from Jimmy himself. So can we go to that interview and then we'll come back and we'll talk about some of our spoilery issues perhaps and then ultimately rate this bad boy? Absolutely. Let's hear a word from our sponsor and then we'll get into my quick chat with Jimmy Fails. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo. And their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Such a strange vibration, people in motion. There's a whole generation with a new explanation. People in motion. I'm sure you've heard of but congrats on the film. I I really liked it a lot. It's a really impressive piece of work. Um well, I appreciate it. I could hear that eight thousand times for this fine. I'm yeah, sure. I'm I'm sure that probably doesn't get old. Uh, <laughs> so 
Jimmy, let me start here because I've I've read you talk a lot about this point about kind of how this story came about and and the writing side of things. I want to ask you a little bit about um, acting in it, playing a a version of yourself where there's elements of a true story at least. Um, I'm just curious what what was your like internal monologue? What questions did you find yourself returning to when you were acting in this movie? Um, that's a great question. I think it wasn't even about the questions I was internally asking myself. It was just sort of what I could do. I'm a storyteller first and foremost. So through whatever medium that is, whether it's writing, whether it's acting, whether it's music, I, I tell stories. So it was all about conveying the message as best I could. So all I had to do was get myself into the right state to be able to do so mm. and be open and i just had to approach it with vulnerability once you once you let that go and you're in your body and you're in your mind then everything else becomes easier when you're acting but a lot of it didn't feel like acting because it's everything is emotionally true sure even as it's fictionalized so you were it was okay to be like in a sense this is me as long as what i'm feeling is real exactly interesting that's how it should be period for Every project that I do should feel true, even if it's a character that is not based on myself or a fictionalized version. Sure. A lot of the performance, Jimmy, is definitely, I think, defined by you kind of staying in motion and staying busy and, you know, having this 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 project of the house and of, of reclaiming this character's life. Um, yeah, keeping him in motion. And you've just got, you have a hopeful look on your face for a lot of movie or like the edge of hope. But there's a couple scenes where you really have to deliver a lot of dialogue. I'm thinking about the bank loan scene, which which really surprised me as a viewer because you you haven't seen the character kind of unload that level of desperation for people who haven't seen seen the movie you essentially you know tell this mortgage loan officer like just give me any predatory rate you have you're like really trying to stay in front of this conversation tell me about those scenes where you really kind of had to had to go for it with the dialogue how were those for you i mean they were you know specifically the balcony scene was probably the toughest scene that i was working on oh with the segway tour with the segway tour yeah right. so that was that was a tough one. The the bank scene was just like a, you know, everyone's felt a desperation, so that was easier to get by. Yeah. But not everyone just, you know, yells out a story to a tour. <laughs> or you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was that was probably the, the toughest one with dialogue. But again, um, I'm a writer as well, so it's all about the interpretation and how you can take that writing, that storytelling, and then just implement it so you know it just takes work are you as sort of tactile of a person as the jimmy fails in this movie i mean so much of that 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 guy who we saw on screen is is defined by interacting with with tools and uh trinkets and instruments and skateboards is that is that true to you jimmy i mean uh, yeah i'm i'm you know i'm a man of many talents (laughs) that's good good for you I like to try it, you know. I mean, I mean, just you know, if you send me some stuff, I'll try to build it, take it apart, rebuild it. I just try to do what I can because I'm not gonna go to a trade school, you know. So I try to kind of teach myself so I can do things myself. Right, right. Um, I want to ask about the character of of Mont because I I I wonder. I sort of had a suspicion, and just totally correct me if wrong, but. 
I wondered if is there some part of that character Jimmy that's like also a piece of you and maybe also a piece of Joe to have this character in the movie who's also like documenting the events of the movie for his own piece of art um I don't well, that's a good question. People have asked that a lot more recently. I think the relationship me and mine have is has nothing to do with this with with Joe. It wasn't like we were trying to make Joe, but I think that me and Joe's basis for our friendship and being vulnerable and open and gentle with each other is what sort of that's where it starts. So it does influence that relationship. But me and Jonathan are also boys, you know. So we we take it. We took it from there after already kind of having a, a center from which we could, you know, spring from. In the, in the script writing process, where, where did the character of Mont come from? That idea of like, we're going to have a writer in this movie writing about the events of, um, of the movie. Well, it came from actually, it, the, the character of Mont for a long time was going to be Prentice. It was based off of a, one of our friends called Prentice, who's a very eccentric sort of guy. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, Mont obviously being you know, an incredible talent, just took it to the next level sort of thing and created his own, you know, unique character that he did, so. How did the physical chemistry with Jonathan Majors, who played Mont, kind of come about in in, in this movie, Jimmy? Because it's so, I mean, from the jump, it's kind of like you guys, when you're whether you're sharing a skateboard or walking down a like a staircase, it's it's almost like you are kind of two halves of the same body. There's a real, like, symbiosis there and I wonder as performers where that how'd that physical chemistry come together again I just had breakfast with him this morning that's just how we are <laughs> okay <laughs> you know and we also had a lot of time to build that bond before not a not a lot of time I mean you would think we had more time but you know probably about two weeks but you know we also had to learn how to ride the skateboard together we were you know we were just you know together all the time you know we would leave set and go to dinner together i would sleep in his hotel room sometimes you know so you know to work on sharing that proximity exactly yeah uh i'm not a skateboarder what's the learning curve like on sharing a skateboard with someone god well jonathan wasn't a skateboarder either but he's also very athletic so it worked out that he's very coordinated and he's, and he's very balanced. Um, but it was sort of tough. Like I took, you know, the brunt of most of the falls. Oh man. But, yeah. But that's all right. All right. <laughs> you got a movie out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I wonder one of the things that I responded to Jimmy, and I think a lot of people will respond to is just the, the look of this movie, the direction, the cinematography. And I'm curious, what sense do you have when you're acting in it of, oh, this is going to look incredible? Or is it more just like, I've got to do my thing, we'll see later? I've got, I've got a job to do. Yeah. And all you can do is just hope for the best. Also, know that Adam Newport Barrett, who's a cinematographer, is one of my favorite photographers, so I have no worry about that at all. Sure. I have no worry. And I don't watch daily, so I was just like, whatever. You got the shot? All right, moving on. Let's go. Cool. Yeah. So then what was it like seeing it back for the first time for you? Um, it was, you know, I don't like to watch myself very much, but again, Adam's my favorite photographer. Uh-huh. So, you know, I don't like pictures of myself, but when he takes them, I do. So okay. I don't like to watch myself, but when Adam Newport Bear is shooting it, then I do. So sure. it, it, was, it was cool to watch it. I was like actually able to sit through and look at myself for two hours. Stepping back for a second, 
Jimmy, I was curious. So the story, your story of the house, I, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about the evolution of it. You know, it goes from being something that happens to you in your childhood to a story that you carry around through adolescence and share with, with friends like Joe to movie idea, to a script, to a movie you're actually making, and now to something that you are talking to veritable strangers about, um, like me. And does does working on a movie like this and talking about it, does it bring you closer, do you think, to the personal experience you actually had? Or is there maybe like a a distancing, preserving process? How, how are you sort of feeling about all this in relation to your own story? Um, well, you know, I, the way I feel about it, if I'm going to be all the way honest, is, please, you know, I'm, I'm always down to, to, you know, to answer questions and stuff. But it's also just such a personal story that I've already put out there that I just I kind of want to just move on. You know, I don't like to dwell in the past. Right. And I've had to do that for five years in the making to make this movie. So I want to move on and be working on other projects and telling other stories. But I understand what what this movie's doing right now. Sure. So I'm always going to be here and be present for that. But yeah, in all honesty, you're ready for the next step. Yeah. You already mentioned that the storytelling medium of your work going forward, that you're willing to, to work across acting, across writing, across music. Uh, do you have an inkling yet of like what you what you might most like to do? Are there directions you're being pulled in creatively right now as you think about what's next? That's the thing. The way I work is, I, you know, I work on songwriting here. I work on writing a story here and then I work on acting here. So it's always I get waves of inspiration for each thing. So I think I'll be doing all of those things. I'm probably going to focus a little bit more on acting now, but I just, you know, I've been writing, I wrote music on the plane on the way here. It's like there's a lot of, you know, I was reading some of my old stuff that I never got to do, and then I'm getting ideas for that. So I'm just, I'm just inspired to move forward. So I'm just going to be coming full force with everything that I want to do. Yeah. So. Tell me about your songwriting. Do you, do, you, do you write mostly on an instrument, or is it lyrics first? No, it's lyrics. Okay. Yeah. Something you can do on an airplane. <laughs> Exactly. Nice. How is riding on an airplane? I can imagine that going really well or really poorly. I hate flying in general, but it's not. It hasn't been that bad. You got to take your mind off it then. Yeah, exactly. Right on. Right that's on. Like something I can do to not think about the fact that I'm in some vehicle in the air, thousands of feet in the air. You know. Sure. Then it's all good. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, well, Jimmy, I think that's about what I've got, man. But uh, congrats again on on Thank the movie you. and. Uh, I hope that uh, I hope the next step is exciting. You don't have to dwell on the past for too much longer. Uh, and yeah, thanks for your time, man. Thank you, man. Take care. Have a good one. All right. Maybe you're right. What if we shouldn't be here? Well, we should be here more. Some millionaire. All right. That was uh, Jimmy Fails, scribe and star of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I think now Noah and I are going to talk about some spoilers for this movie and then we're going to rate it so maybe zone out if you plan to go catch it in the theater but uh Noah what do you make of the end of this movie and the fact that the revelation quote unquote that Jimmy's grandfather did not build the house becomes central to Mont's play it turns the movie inward. I think it's a good choice. Otherwise, it would be such a political film as to like not appeal to anyone, maybe. 
but at the same time, it definitely pulls a punch at the end by making it about this one man's inability to grow up and find purpose. Yeah, like I think the part that works is that it kind of plays into this like constant allure of an American dream, right? Of this myth of the self-made man who's so skilled he cannot be denied. That's the imagined legacy of Jimmy's grandpa. That's the legacy that Jimmy, whether he knows it or not, is seeking to live up to. And when that turns out to be false, there is this very true feeling like, yeah, there are no exceptions to the rule. This has always been like a myth about opportunity in America and maybe opportunity in San Francisco. I, But I think that like, as you were kind of saying, I can't remember if it was before we started recording, but like, I think the fact that that is not true or at least could not be true is so, is such a clear possibility throughout that then to be like, this is the thing is this movie kind of like really like pinning the tail on something that's really just should be a more elusive message to the movie and Mont staging a play around it to tell his friend almost feel, makes it feel like a choice that is on the one hand, both like a little contrived and melodramatic, but is like, what is your relationship with this guy that you thought the way to tell him this was to yell at him in front of everyone he knows? Like, aren't you right. guys tied at the hip? It's, it's you are tied at the hip, and it's also like I don't know if it's supposed to put it in that vernacular or something of guys talking shit and the only way that Mott knows how to do it is through a performance of this level where he embodies other people. Cause it's not really a play. He's just sort of doing the impressions of three people he knows. You're right. It's like a, it's a one man show. So maybe throughout the whole film and we see these sort of cutscenes of it, but he's trying to speak like them. Yes. And maybe it is to finally convey to Jimmy like what he needs to hear and thus is the argument of the movie of, you know, what these guys get out of these seemingly horribly toxic relationships they have with each other is some honesty. Jimmy's final memory of Kofi is Kofi saying, like, quote, some of the meanest shit anyone's ever said to him. Right. You know, but he wasn't wrong. And he's ultimately, like, the thing that maybe pushes this over the top. I mean, he's the one shouting at him, like, what are you guys doing in that big house? Mm. Like, why are you running away from, like, your lives? Yeah. Why don't you just come back here or never come back at all? But you can't put one foot in and one foot out. Interesting. And that's Kofi's ultimate message, which then Mont puts in a very sort of digestible theatrical production, which the first half is pretty interesting. The second half is sort of bizarre and maudlin. Right. Yeah. I just felt like the... The theme was self-evident and to... Right. But I don't think you needed... I think you're right. I don't think you needed to uh, have it be that him finding out that this thing that he later admits he knew the whole time... Yep. <laughs> uh, ...is untrue. I think you could have had more scenes like the ones with the people on the little scooter things. Yes. And... Which is a great You scene. know, maybe have uh, Wanda the aunt or whatever say something like oh you know your grandpa was full of shit or something sure sure yeah but then ultimately i think if you don't have that craziness then how do you land this movie like is he just working at an ace hardware or something like what is his growth here that he just can't be in san francisco 
it's a big mythic turn. You know, he ro- he rows out into the bay like he's in a well, wind slow home. But that's painting. just what Mont's envisioning because the two scenes, like it, it's him on the pier and he oh, thinks about right. it and it cuts to him yeah. and then it cuts back to him earlier that, you know, when it was. So I think that's just a vision of it. I think if anything, maybe he went to the other side of the bay or something. So much of what's good and bad about this movie is symptomatic of it being a first movie. All the cinematography tricks, all the music cues, all the feeling that there are stories to be stories and images and sequences to be unleashed that have been gestating with these guys for a decade and a half, maybe or maybe a decade. Um, and the way it comes out with such urgency, you know, on the one hand, this I trite thing to say but it's like the highest ideal of like american independent film to take this concept and the erosion of this city and like how it affects people that too many of the people in the audience don't think about like it's doing like what we want american like independent film to do and then but then on the other hand like it's a first movie so they want to make sure that you get it and we got to make sure that the drama is like you know cut in such a way that this movie feels like sellable and so you got to take the good with the bad listen man san francisco was never a city of easy convenient sort of wholesome living it was always a gold rush place right so to think of it as anything other than that to me seems a bit naive that family that is disputing the house like they've got their own troubles too i mean i thought that was such a good scene when that woman was just sort of the white woman who's ostensibly living in the house is just after they've moved out, sitting on the stoop, just, you know, waiting to let go. She's had her dream home. Yeah. This house, it's it's almost like a haunted house story. And there's these like these ghosts and things. Right. And this one is from told from the perspective of the ghost. That's interesting. I mean, that's fascinating. How are we gonna rate this movie? I think it's a good bad. Okay. I think it's like a tiny bit long and I think it takes a minute to figure out what it's trying to do. But when it gets there, it's a good movie and a really interesting, albeit dark character study. But I don't know that it has the kind of hang, like as you admitted, Chance, like all the performances are kind of inward. So it doesn't really have that hang that I think other movies of this genre uh, that are more watchable have yeah so that's fair i think it's good good um i think it's far from perfect um but i think that the cinematography and like some of the the humor around like there is some good shit talk the opening line of the movie is like wow like jail really messes a guy up doesn't it like there is some <laughs> the script is good um i yeah i think it's I think it'll end up being like somewhere in the 30 best films I saw this year. And uh, I would happily rewatch it. It's so beautiful. Like shot for shot. It is really well shot. Yeah. And I don't think it does a beautiful core relationship here too. I'm not saying it's not a good movie. I just think by our scale, it could have been more watchable. Definitely could have been more watchable. Easily also could have been darker and more tragic. I'm very glad it wasn't. I think that the the image of freedom in the rowboat at the end, whether real or not, um, is stirring. And I felt was like uplifting. Whatever it meant, we all just kind of have to push against the current and go find whatever that next thing is. So, um, Damn. Thank you. Uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. 
Uh, it's in theaters now. If you're in a city that's probably suffering from gentrification, uh, I think it'll get into like even smaller markets as we, as we move on. Thanks so much to Jimmy Fails for talking. Thanks to the Playlist Podcast Network for hosting us. Uh, find Indie Beat, the Playlist Podcast, all the great shows um, on, on the network. Thanks to the California College of the Arts for sponsoring us, San Francisco Zone. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and thank you, buddy, for chatting about this movie. Hey, buddy. Anytime. Always happy to watch a movie and then talk to you. 